Welcome to The Fabric Podcast. As we dig into this dangerous book, the Bible. Yes, it's been dangerous in all the wrong ways over the years, but maybe, just maybe, it might be dangerous in a rich, challenging, hopeful kind of way in each of our lives too. Here's Greg Meyer. I'm Greg Meyer, and it is good to be with you all here today. Um, We are on our second week of digging into this dangerous book, um, the Bible. Dangerous in two ways, one of which is decidedly better than the other. Um, You know, on the one hand, it's um, the, the Bible has been used, or actually I probably should say abused, Um, by people who, you know, use it as a weapon. It's been used that way far too often in history, and it's still being used that way today. People decide for themselves what they want it to say, um, or, you know, they just don't look deeply enough into who it is who wrote it and what it's all about to be able to step across that gulf of time and culture and language in order to know what it really is trying to say, so they just make it say what they want it to say. And when they do that, they thrust it on others. And, you know, whenever we take shortcuts to reading the Bible um, and don't take its context seriously, we end up turning it into our book. And we do inappropriate and often harmful things with it, and, and that's dangerous. And then, you know, because people have been affected by that danger or because it just really is a difficult book to try to read and understand and know what to do with and, to, you know, travel through all that gulf of time and language and culture... Uh, That has discouraged a lot of people from ever getting to know it in the first place or getting to know it well. And that's even true of people, you know, who say they really value this book, maybe like yourself. I mean, maybe that describes you. I mean, you maybe think you value it, but how often does this book get off that dusty shelf at home or, you know, how well do you actually know it? It's it's a tough book. So there's another danger in it, though, that I, that's the one that I'm interested in talking about today. And that's a danger that the Bible poses to our comfort zones. It poses to our self-interest or to our overly simplified view of our lives and of the world around us. Uh, The Bible, if we dare to get to know it and live in dialogue with it, and so not commanded by it, but living in dialogue with it, uh, I, I think we start discovering something bigger. It's able to make us bigger. It's able to make us part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think that's that's a good kind of danger um, that we want to make ourselves uh, vulnerable to. So we'll be talking about this dangerous book for the next couple of weeks, and I hope to lure you into its danger. I think it's actually a lot of fun. And sometimes when you have to work really hard to like mine what is actually in here, you appreciate it and enjoy it and get more out of it that way. So, you know, that can be an, an okay thing. So last week, I talked about some of the tools that we can use to help us to, um, you know, span that distance, to help us look through those thousands of years of fog that keep us from understanding what is going on in this book. And if you weren't here or didn't catch the podcast, I encourage you to do it because uh, those tools are things that we're going to be referring to and using throughout the rest of these weeks. And so it'd be helpful for you to be up on that. But today, what I want to do is to look at some stories that you maybe know and maybe don't know. And these are the stories of the superheroes, the rock stars, the great role models that appear in the Bible. And I think they, the ones in the Bible, have a similar effect on us as the ones of our own day and age, our own superheroes in our own day day and age. You know, we love to hear the stories where we gawk at 
you know, those heroes in our world around us. Um, we're inspired by them, but they also give us the message that we are not like them, right? We're not heroes. I don't have the abilities. I don't have the powers. I don't have the suit, <laughs> whatever it might happen to be. I'll never be one of the Marvel agents, and neither, neither will you. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and when something really scary hope happens, I hope I don't think that somehow I suddenly have the power to dodge bullets or stop a speeding train, right? And also, I have to admit that the reality is I am not like them. And in a pinch, when something really serious happens, I need them to protect me because I am not like them. I am like all those anonymous, helpless people in the crowd in the background of the movies. Heroes have a double-edged sword, don't they? I mean, they inspire us because of what they can do, and they discourage us because we can't do it. So what about the heroes in the Bible? Are they like that too? There's Abraham, Noah, Joseph, Moses, Esther, David, Elijah, and many others in the Old Testament. Then you go to the New Testament, you have the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph. You have Mary Magdalene, you have Peter, you've got Paul. Um, are we supposed to be thankful for all that they did and put the word saint in front of their names and then simply realize how fundamentally we are not like them? I mean, is that the purpose of heroes there? So last week, I, um, I mentioned the Bible's lack of fear of leaving, uh, leaving things messy. The, the Bible just has this huge lack of fear of leaving things messy. For example, things I mentioned last week, having two versions of the creation story side by side, they contradict each other, and they just put them side by side. Or four gospels, four stories, four books writing about the life of Jesus, one, two, three, four, they don't tell the same story. They, they contradict each other in all kinds of things, right? conflict with each other. So th this lack of need to clean everything up, to keep it nice and tidy, it spills over in how the Bible talks about its heroes as well. If a hero is anything, though, I mean, really, come on, if a hero is anything, shouldn't they be perfect? Shouldn't they be just exactly like that? But in the Bible, the heroes are more than perfect. They're all plagued with something else, something else. You see, the Bible has this strange interest of making its heroes normal human instead of superhuman. No, why would that be? Why would that be? So, sometimes it even makes them the worst of human. Maybe the authors themselves, you know, wanted to depict them that way, or maybe the many, many generations later that passed on these stories and told them and kind of massaged and shaped and molded them as they traveled. Maybe they were interested in a more honest version than this well-manicured one. I mean, we don't know exactly. But, but the question is, like, why would they do that? Why would they put that twist in all their heroes? Um, you know, I think that's an important question to ask. Why do they keep knocking their heroes off of their pedestals? Like I said last week, that we need to let the whole interpret the part rather than the part interpret the whole. And that becomes a really important concept for us. And it's actually one of the big pictures here about heroes that we need to realize that is being repeated over and over again because having that big picture of how the Bible deals with its heroes helps us understand how to read each and every individual story that we might get stuck on otherwise. So um, I think it's worth looking at some of these stories. Are you game to look at a few? 
That's a rhetorical question, by the way. I'm going to do it, so you might as well say yes. Okay, good, thank you. All right, let's do that, since you asked. Since you asked, okay. So let's look at a couple of these hero stories. But to help you understand them, I want to fill you in on how they fit into the larger story of Israel, the people, the early people of, of this book. So in the progression of the larger narrative of the Bible, um, you had, first of all, in those primordial mists of time, you have Adam and Eve and the Noah stories. But quickly after that, it, it moves to something a little bit more concrete, something a little bit more historical in their sense of historical. And you get the stories um, uh, of ancient Israel, of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebekah, of Jacob and his 12 sons, including Joseph, you know, the one with a coat of many colors, uh, that one. And, and that ushers them into their life, their captivity in Egypt, which goes on for hundreds of years. And at the end of that, then, you, then Moses comes up, okay? And Moses is the one that leads them out of, out of captivity, 40 years in the wilderness, and they get to the promised land. And that's what ushers in a brand new sequence in the, in the story. Because when Moses dies at the end of that, then Joshua takes over. And Joshua then is presiding not over Israel in captivity or this band of people in the wilderness, but now 12 tribes of people that understand themselves collectively as Israel. But they live as tribes out in this wilderness area that they have claimed as their promised land. All right? Now, the relationships with these people were tumultuous. Archaeological evidence puts this era of Israel's life from about 1200 to 1050 before the Common Era. And that was a period of conflict, and, and the tribes of Israel needed to unite themselves to defend themselves against all the other peoples that were trying to you know, push them out of their territory, and sometimes even to go on the offense to you know, reclaim territory they're being pushed out of. Now, I'm kind of bending over backwards um, to jump over the morality, or lack thereof, of claiming all this land for themselves and being in warfare, um, because... Well, one, that's another message. And two, I don't want to take my 21st century morals and let them get in the way of not what they did, but the message that they were trying to share with us, right? That's what we're looking at, the message behind this story. So that is kind of what's going on. Anyway, in order to defend themselves, they needed to call on some charismatic military leaders. They called them judges, shofetim, um, Call them judges. They aren't really judges at all. Um, they're not even really religious leaders. They're just like really good at leading Israel into battle. And they all were committed to Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, um, Yah, um, I am who I am, um, as the Bible introduces it. Um, but, uh, you know, in most cases, like I said, they're not really religious, order, uh, religious leaders. And they kind of came and went like next Netflix um, shows, you know, that don't get a second season to be continued with. So, on these judges, let's take Jephthah. Who knows who Jephthah is? But we, before we jump into his story, one more side note here. Something to understand these judges. I want to pause and think, of what, think about what it was like back there 3,000 plus years ago, right? This is the Iron Age. People lived in small agricultural settlements, they were subject to whatever warlords had the most sway at their time. Um, they developed these sagas or legends that developed around them in an oral tradition, the stories that they told around fires at night for generations and generations. By the time you were a little kid, you had heard them all already, and you were going to keep hearing them the rest of your life. Um, so these stories not only preserved 
their, um, preserved their history. They also passed on the identity that preserved who they were in this very um, conflictual, dynamic, fluid time and um, era and space that they were living in. Um, it also was their main entertainment, right? I mean, you may rewatch some of your favorite movies or your favorite shows or reread some of your books. What if you didn't have any of that? All you had were the stories that were told over and over again about your people, and usually told by the person who was the best storyteller, who knew how to get it just right. Anyway, these stories gradually are written down, and if they were, un if they were understood as being part of what they called God's saving history of the people of Israel, they were collected together and became compiled into something that they began to know as the sacred writings of the Hebrew people, something that we now call the Old Testament. So imagine yourself in a tent, sound of livestock in the distance, the wind buffeting the sides of the tent, a smoldering fire giving a little bit of light, a little bit of heat against the cold night. And someone asks, would you tell the story of Jephthah the Gileadite one more time? So it's in your soap readings this week at the bottom of your Sunday paper, all right? So you can read it for yourself. Mostly uh, it's Judges chapters 11 and 12. So Jephthah, Jephthah, his father had several children other than Jephthah, whom he had with someone he was not supposed to have a child with. And so uh, they were raised together, but as they, you know, they got a bit older and um, inheritance was an issue, Jephthah is pushed out of the house, no longer part of the family, right? So he goes out into the countryside uh, with, and gathers a bunch of outlaws around him. And evidently, they were very good at ransacking and pillaging. Um, good enough, at least, so that when the Ammonites, a neighboring kingdom, decides that they want to come, to, come and you know, be at war with, with the Gileadites, you know, the Gileadites, that's the tribe of Gilead of the people of Israel that Jephthah was part of, right? You all knew that. Um, so when the Canaanite or the Ammonites come to fight against the Gileadites, the Gileadites all turn to Jephthah and say, would you lead our forces? Jephthah's not interested. He said, you kicked me out. Now you want me to help you out? They said, okay, okay. If you can fight against the Ammonites and win, you can be the leader of all of us. To which Jephthah says, that's a deal. All right, so he does. So at that, uh, you know, Jephthah leads some negotiations with the Ammonite king, displaying his knowledge and his cleverness, but all for naught. As the Bible says, the king of the Ammonites did not heed the message that Jephthah sent to him. All right, then the story goes on. Then the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah. That kind of must, that was probably like his anointing, um, his superhero juice, right? The spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh to Mizpah and on to the Ammonites to fight against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hand. He inflicted a massive defeat on them. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Just like a hero is supposed to do, right? Perfect. Like you'd write the story. Jephthah goes on to more victories before his death. But there's more to Jephthah than his heroism. As he leads off to battle, passing through Gilead and Manasseh and Mizpah on his way to the Ammonites, his confidence and his determination are perhaps maybe a little bit of overestimation of his role as savior of the people of Israel, encourages him to take a vow to Yahweh. 
one he is not asked to take, but he chooses for himself. Let me read. He said, If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return victorious from the Ammonites, shall be Yahweh's, to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. Not a well-thought-out promise to make before one's God. For upon his return, which is victorious in battle, he is defeated in life. Read on. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and there was his daughter, coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. She was his only daughter. He had no son or daughter except her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to Yahweh, and I cannot take back my vow. Jephthah's heroism is mixed with tragedy. Tragedy. This was not a demonstration of, the, of his greatness, but of his foolishness. In these 3,000-year-old people's lives and culture, this is a way of them telling us about how they are a mixture of the glory of what God could do for them and the tragedy of what they could do to themselves. Jephthah's daughter says to him, my father, if you have opened your mouth to Yahweh, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that Yahweh has given you vengeance against your, enemy, your enemies, the Ammonites. And she said to her father, grant me two months so that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity with my companions. Go, he said, and sent her away for two months. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow that he had made. She had never slept with a man. So there arose an Israelite a custom that for four days every year the daughters of Israel would go out to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. For what would Jephthah be longest remembered? Heroism. A second story. A few hundred years later, Israel graduates from um, military leaders over their tribes to desiring to be a nation like all the other big players on the block at that time. And so they want a king. And so they find uh, a king. They have uh, Saul as their first king. And after Saul, there is David. And I'll be brief about David's story. He was Israel's greatest king and certainly one of the uh, greatest figures in the entire story of the Bible. Um, one of the standouts. He was courageous. He was committed to Yahweh. He was a gifted leader and strategist. He was a skilled musician and poet. I mean, what's not to like? He's the, he's the perfect guy. He took this ragamuffin tribal people and he turned them into the most powerful, the most wealthy nation in that part of the world during his rule. But becoming a king did not make him not a human. And that's the problem. 
And one day, during the height of his power, Nathan, the prophet of Israel and the trusted advisor to David, comes to him with this story. Nathan says to David, There were two men, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had only one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It ate of his meager fare, it drank from his cup, and sat on his lap. It was like a child to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flocks to prepare for the visitor, and he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for his guest. When David heard that story, his anger rose up against the rich man who had done this. He said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this, because he had no pity. And Nathan says to David, You are the man. Ouch. So, um, again... You can read the story, 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. It's your soap readings for this week. But in short, so David has fallen for Bathsheba, right? Unfortunately, Bathsheba is already married to a guy named Uriah. Well, that's not going to stop David. So he just makes sure that Uriah gets positioned in the next battle so that he is killed. And then Bathsheba is free for his taking. Not a proud moment for Israel's greatest son, is it? Now, the story didn't have to be told that way, did it? I mean, why did they have to include this part? David's cruel treachery could easily have been hidden, just left out. David could have been kept a squeaky clean hero that Israel and others would admire forever. But Israel told the whole story to remind us that he was not just a hero, he was a human. And out of that confession came Psalm 51. Psalm 51, a powerful, moving song attributed to David himself that was sung out of the regret for what he had done and sung because of the stumbling block that he had put between himself and his people, between himself and Yahweh, between himself and his his own self-respect. Heroes. Heroes. There are so many stories like this. I, I want to tell you a third story last one. Okay, third story. Uh, I've told you this story before some years ago, but it bears repeating because because of its role in the larger storyline, the larger arc of the Bible, uh, telling us something about all these heroes that keep cropping up in this big, crazy book, and because it tells us something about ourselves. It tells us something about ourselves. It's a story that I hope you can all know and that you can all hold because of what it, how it steers us, what it lets us know of how we can be church together, and how we can maybe even build community beyond ourselves with others. So um, it's the story of Peter. Actually, Sam, Simon, right? That's his name first. His name starts out as Simon in the stories. So if David was the super king, Simon was the super disciple, super follower of Jesus. Okay, He was the number one follower of Jesus. He was a simple fisherman that Jesus recruited. But he was the one with like enough gumption, enough uh, courage and passion to rise to the top of the heap. And he showed his superpower one day when, um, 
you know, Jesus and his followers were, I mean, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of energy, a lot of anticipation. There's also a lot of opposition, a lot of controversy, and things are really getting tense. And, and Jesus sits down with this, you know, inner circle of his followers, his disciples, and he asks, he says, who, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples said, well, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Others think you're Elijah or Jeremiah or someone like that. And Jesus says, well, okay, but, but who do you say that I am? And you can almost imagine the silence and the confusion and the uncertainty of how to answer that. But, but then Peter pipes in and he says, Jesus, you are, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And that seems to just stop Jesus in his tracks. And he turns and he looks at them and he says, right then and there, he says, Simon, your name will now be Peter. Petros means a rock. Because it is in being what you were, what, I, what you are showing yourself to be, that the church shall be built. Well, I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, stardom, like automatic promotion to the Disciple Hall of Fame, right then and right there. I mean, this, this is just perfect. Um, you might uh, look at this picture. This is, um, that's the Basilica of St. Peter, right? In Rome, at the Vatican. It is like the Roman Catholic Church in the whole world. Look at it with its soaring columns and high ceilings and gilded walls and marble floors. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that represents our heroes, right? I mean, that's what it, that's what it shall be. That's what Peter had just achieved. Except, except, you got to know something here, all right? I, I think when Jesus said that, there was sort of a twinkle in his eyes and maybe even a little bit of a smile on his face. Now, I don't know that for sure, but when you read the Bible for a while, you start picking up on its patterns and its ways of doing things, even the kind of humor that's mixed in there. In this case, you get a great example of that tool I mentioned about seeing the larger message, but also the smaller point, okay? It's kind of like this. If you weren't just hopping in and reading this one story behind, all by itself, the one I just told you, which unfortunately is what people usually do. They just read that one story. But you're actually you know, reading the stories before and after. Then that naming as, of Simon as Peter, the rock, would probably ring a bell and bring a little bit of a smirk to your, uh, to your face. Because just a page before it, you had read another story about Simon. It's also in your soap for this week, so you can read the whole thing, but let me cut to the chase. The disciples, just a couple days before, were out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. All right? Go out in the evening. By, mid, by the middle of the night, the wind had picked up. The seas were getting not so great. And just before dawn, in that dim darkness, they see, according to the story, and again, let me remind you, there is some cultural storytelling distance between them and us today. And also, if you remember, vehicle and cargo. If you don't know what I mean by those, listen to last week's podcast. But in that early dawn, Jesus comes walking across the water to the disciples in that boat. The disciples are spooked. I mean, literally, they said they thought he was a ghost. But Jesus says, it is me. Do not be afraid. There are those words again, by the way. Do not be afraid. Three weeks in a row. We'll see what happens next week. Um, do not be afraid. Um, and Peter, did I mention he's also impetuous? 
Peter says, Jesus, if that is you, command me to come across the water to you. And Jesus says, come. And so he steps out of the boat and he starts walking across the water. But then after he gets part of the way, he's distracted by the wind and maybe the waves splashing against his legs and he looks down and he starts to sink like a rock. Yeah. Don't tell me that a couple days later when Jesus says, I'm going to call you rock because it's people like you and what you do that we're going to build this church, that he didn't have that story in mind as well. No, Peter. Peter, the rock that builds and the rock that sinks. So now there's a lot more packed into the story than what I'm unpacking today. And there's also more to Peter's rock stardom, if you'll excuse the pun, um, that I'm also not going to um, take time for. But I hope you see this um, you know, larger red thread running through the Bible telling us something that we need to know about heroes and who it is that builds the kingdom of heaven. That is, weaves the three strands that hold our world, that hold our existence together. It may be heroes, but heroes are not perfect. Heroes are people. People who are human. Uh, and I know that's redundant, but we forget it, right? We forget it. They are flawed. Some of them tragically, some of them embarrassingly. It is just the way it is. It is the way we are. It is the way you are. It is the way I am. Being imperfect is not your problem. Thinking that you do not have any hero in you, that is your problem. The people who passed on and wrote down and collected these pieces of this book from start to finish, they didn't disqualify people because of their missteps. They didn't hide the truth about them. They didn't apologize or make excuses for what they had done. No, their dirty laundry is hanging out there for everyone who passes by to see. St. Peter's Cathedral. Hmm, beautiful, huh? I'd love to be that kind of hero. Seems to be a wonderful tribute, but maybe it's really only kind of a half-truth, huh? Maybe it's kind of a lie. Or maybe, on the other hand, maybe it's what we really are inside. Or maybe it's the way God sees us. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know which it is. What I do know is that there is forgiveness in the approach that the Bible takes for those who have failed. And even more so, there's a message. Now, remember, I want you to remember that I am not encouraging you to look at the Bible and get to know it so that you know what happened back then. I encourage you to read this story in order to hear the message that it has for you and the vision of this world and of your life that it, can, that it wants to offer you. That message, which is even more powerful than forgiveness for imperfect heroes of the past, that message is that you have a role in the future. You aren't perfect. You and I have some pretty big problems. We've got flaws. We've got deficiencies. And that is neither okay or not okay. It is simply the way we are, Sister Rock and Brother Stone. It's people like you and me, because of who we are and despite who we are, that weaves this world together, if we dare, if we dare. Thanks for listening. 
We hope these conversations are helpful and connective. You can find out more about Fabric at fabricmpls.com. There you can find notes from previous conversations and other resources for deepening your relationships with the threads of yourself, others, and that third strand we often call God. You can also find ways of connecting to a group, whether you're in the Twin Cities or not. You can join in supporting this community financially too. It's through the generous giving of people like you that Fabric is sustained. Again, that's fabricmpls.com. Thanks for being Fabric in your unique way.